And what these two themes are, the first is that Christ has come as God's agent who will bring to pass the new creation. His signs are sort of the first tastes of the new creation. But the primary way the new creation is experienced in this life is not in the restoration of the physical or restoration of health primarily or of the fruits of the new creation. It's in the transformation of lives through the new birth, through, through lives that are delivered from freedom, uh, delivered from sin, have freedom from the power and the guilt of sin. Christ is creating a new humanity for himself. And then this story is also preparing us for another theme that's going to be dominating these chapters, and that's the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. You remember Jesus worked on the Sabbath. Um, he intentionally worked on the Sabbath in order to highlight something very important about his person. In order not just to poke the Jews in the eyes, but to catch their attention that he is working with the same prerogatives and on the same agenda as God the Father. He is making himself equal with God. And that is one of the primary reasons the Jews are trying to put him to death. Um, there is but one God. That's what the Old Testament affirms. And we affirm that. One true and living God. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. And the Jews here, Christ, make himself equal with the Father. And what they hear is a threat to this doctrine of monotheism. There, there, there is one God. How in the world could this man, Jesus, be claiming total equality with the Father, working on the same terms as the Father, and there not be two gods? What is going on here? How and what um, is Jesus' sonship? How does it function? So that's really the goal of this uh, entire section that is going to be coming. Uh, but before we dive in, just look at how, how this is structured. Um, in verse uh, 16, Jesus is doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, he defends himself. So verse 16, the Jews are persecuting him. Verse 17, he defends himself, giving an explanation why he's doing it. Verse 18, they start persecuting him all the more, trying to put him to death. And then we come to verses 19 through 29, which is an extended section of Jesus' defense, again, of himself. What he means by equality with the Father. What he means by working on the same terms as God the Father. And what we're going to get in this section, and we're going to take a couple weeks to go through it, it's just very rich, is really the first in John of just a rich crystallization passage of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, John is probably the most triune of all the Gospels. All the Gospels obviously speak of the Trinity, but it's massive for John, and we're going to see a few of those reasons today. Um, so I've entitled this, this whole section here, Three Explanations of the Nature and Implication of Jesus' Sonship. What does that mean, that he's the Son of God? Um, how's that not a threat to there being one God? And uh, how does he relate to, to God the Father? And why is that so important? Who cares? Is that, does that make any difference for our life whatsoever? And obviously it's, it's massive. We said last week, without this, you do not have the gospel. Um, and we'll see just why this morning. Let me show you here how this section is, is broken up. Um, there are three truly, truly statements. Um, John's the only gospel that uses this double truly. Truly, truly. It's very important. Very true. Pay close attention. There's three of these in this passage. And that's how we're going to sort of break it up. Verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you. And those are going to be our three sections um, organized around these truly statements. This morning, we're going to just do the first one, verses 19 to 23, as Jesus will explain his role as the Son. His role as the Son. What do you mean you're the Son of God, Jesus? Jesus claims to work on the same terms as God the Father, verse 17. And he claims a lot of things that he's in, in the next verses, um, all implying that he's on the same level with God. So remember back to chapter 1, verse 2. He was with God, and he was what? God. Very God of very God. He is. Only one who is as fully God as the Father could say the things that Christ is going to say this morning. But the point of this section is to explain what is meant by calling himself the Son. How does he relate to the Father? How does he possess equal equality and authority alongside the Father and not a threat to there being only one God? So what is his role as the Son? Well, first, the Son imitates... Um, that's the divisions there. Uh, the Son imitates the Father out of perfect submission. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The main point of this verse is to proclaim in the loudest of terms the absolute unity of the members of the Trinity. There's never a purpose, never a wish, never a work that one person in the Trinity does that the others are not also involved in. It's massive. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The point is that from eternity, God existed as a happy fellowship in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. For eternity relating to himself um, each having a distinct role son the father and the spirit and we're going to see just that this morning so the son imitates the father out of perfect submission what does that mean well let's look line by line here he does what the father does exclusively look what it says the son is not able to do anything from himself except what he sees the father doing. So what does that mean? To do something from yourself um, is what, literally what it is in the Greek. Um, to do something from yourself means to do it in independence from another or in, in reliance on yourself, on your own initiative. Right? So I'll give you an example. Um, think John 15. Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me and I in you. You'll bear much fruit. Uh, for what? You cannot bear fruit, literally, from Yourself. That is what? An independence from me, on your own initiative, from your own doing. That's the exact same idea here. The Son with God, the Father. Look what it says. He cannot do anything from himself. He cannot do anything in independence from God the Father. The point is not that the Son is unable because he doesn't have all the attributes of God, right? We're going to see in this passage, everything belonging to God the Father belongs to Christ. Every attribute of the Father's 
is Christ's. But the Son says, I cannot do anything apart from the Father. Meaning, what? Meaning he has an inability to do anything from himself, and that stems from his perfect submission to the plans and the purposes of God the Father. It doesn't mean he's unable because he doesn't have the attributes, but he's unable to do anything outside of a submission to God the Father. He does nothing from his own agenda or, or initiative. Then what does he do, is the question. Well, he does only the things the Father is also doing. That's what he says in this, this passage. In other words, there's never a maverick moment with the Son. There's never a moment in which he is doing something the Father is not also purposing and willing and involved in. He never has an agenda the Father doesn't. The Son and all of his actions, according to this verse, are always responses to God the Father. He's always responding to God the Father. D.A. Carson said it this way, The Father initiates, sins, commands, commissions, grants. And the Son responds, obeys, performs Father's will, and receives authority. A good illustration of this that a lot of commentators like to pull out is of a son working with a father back in that time, usually learning the father's trade, right? So a carpenter, think of Jesus with Joseph. He would have a trade, and the son would mimic everything the father would do. He would, he would imitate him and, and, and learn from him. Um, it's a common thing for a father to do with a with a son. And that's the point here. The point isn't that Jesus is learning or gaining an ability he didn't have, but it's a perfect harmony and working together alongside of his father. The father initiates and the son responds by performing the father's works. Notice it's one more thing here. It says, except what he sees the father doing. That's another way it highlights the son's deity, right? Who can see the Father and have insight into all the Father is doing except God alone, right? The Son sees what the Father is doing. And he responds, always responds, perfectly to everything the Father does. So, so far, what do we, what do we have? He is equal with God in every way. And he's distinct from the Father. He is not the Father. And yet they are in perfect unity and a relationship of headship and submission. You see, there is such a thing as unity and plurality. Um, there's a thing as diversity with function and roles, while there is equality in essence. The Son eternally exists as a Son who has been eternally begotten from his Father. Never a time which the Son did not exist, and yet he has always existed as the Son of the Father. Son is from eternity of the very nature of the Father. Nicene Creed says, very God of very God, light of light, is the Son. And yet from eternity in this relationship as a Father and a Son, submitting, always doing, and responding to God the Father. That's what Christ is, is who he is as the Son. Always responding to the Father's love and love, to the Father's authority, Independence and submission. And so they're equal, in essence, in every way, and yet there existed these roles and functions within the relationship. So the best illustration of this is what? Genesis 2, 
24. The two shall become one flesh. There is unity and equality between a husband and a wife, between the first husband and the wife, Adam and Eve. Totally the image of God, both fully in the image of God. And yet there are distinct roles and distinct ways women and men are to relate to one another. Subordination in role, in other words, does not mean inferiority in nature. Get that? Because Christ is totally equal with the Father, and he's also subordinate to the Father. So contrary to what our culture tells us. Man and woman have these distinct roles, and they're an essential way in which they reflect the image and nature of God. Listen to, to Michael Reeves, what, what he says. There is something about the relationship and difference between the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, that images the being of God. Eve is a person quite distinct from Adam, and yet she has all her life and being from Adam. She comes from his side, his bone of his bone, and flesh of his flesh, and is one with him in the flesh. Far better than leaves, eggs, and liquid. So all these sort of superficial illustrations that people try to give. Y'all know the egg illustration? Just side note, don't make any illustrations of the Trinity. You will be a heretic if you do, okay? Uh, that's why I was trying to find a graphic for the uh, PowerPoint. I was like, man, if I put any kind of graphic there, I'm going to be like a heretic. So that's just a black background, okay? Um, so <laughs> far better than leaves, eggs, and liquids. That reflects, so this relationship, husband and wife, reflects a personal God, a son who is distinct from his father, and yet who is of the very being of the Father, and who is eternally one with him in the Spirit. That's why gender roles are such a big deal. That's why the devil is attacking gender roles and distinctions right now. They're massive. They reflect the character and the nature of God. The image of God is displayed in a marriage that, that highlights the unity and the, 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 the equality and yet the distinct roles in the way God has designed man and woman. It is um, reflective of the very nature of God. So the son does what the father does exclusively. That's not all. Let's finish verse 19. He does what the father does exhaustively. Look at the rest of verse 19. For whatever the father does, these things also the son does like. So what's the difference between these, these two points? The first emphasized the son's perfect response to the father's work, right? But this clause, this point here, highlights the comprehensiveness of the son's work. The thought still might remain that it is possible that there are some works that the father does that the son doesn't participate in, right? But Jesus here tells us that there is not one thing that the Father ever does that he does not do through his Son. Everything the Father does, he does through his Son. There's another astonishing claim to deity. Only one who's truly God could say that. Again, D.A. Carson says, the only one who could conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as great as the Father, as divine as the Father. 
first clause told us that there is nothing that the Son does which the Father is not doing. And this clause tells us there's nothing the Father does that the Son is not doing. In other words, there's total unity in the Godhead. The Son exists alongside the Father as very God, a very God in nature, but there's not two gods. There's one God. Well, why is there one God? Because the Son exists as eternally begotten from the Father and relating to the Father in perfect harmony and unity. That's why there's one God. Whatever the Father does, he does through his Son. Um, in your own time, go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Um, a ton of passages that, that highlight um, just that. So verse 19 told us that the Son imitates the Father out of perfect submission. And uh, this is Jesus' first explanation of his role as the Son. Next, verse 20 um, tells us the Father installs the Son as his representative out of complete love. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. This is the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. One in which the Son gladly responds to his Father out of loving submission, and the Father responds to his Son in love. Hold your hand here and go to John 14. We are going to be in the second half of John, back and forth, so just keep your hand here and keep your hand in the second half of John. John 14, quickly look at verse 31. The son always responds with loving submission to his father, 1431. But I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. That's the son. And our verse here tells us that the father responds to his son with eternal love. He loves his son. Flip over to chapter 17, verse 24. Father loves his son. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he created everything? The father was in love with his son. And the son was in love with his father, joyfully submitting and responding to all the father was doing. A relationship of love for eternity. This love the father has for his son is quite distinct from his love that he has for you and for me. Um, God's love for the world is what? It's a condescending love. It's a love despite our sinfulness. It's a love that responds to our sinfulness with grace and mercy. That's not the kind of love the father had for his son. The Father responds to the Son in love because of the perfection of the Son, because of his total worthiness, because of his total love and submission to himself as Father, because the Son embodies everything it means to be God. The Father loves the Son. And this verse tells us that this love the Father had for the Son um, is the reason for the Son's position as his agent of every work that he does. So it gives a four. Look at the beginning of verse 24. The father loves the son. So why is verse 19 true? Because of this love the father has for the son. The father is so filled with love for his son that he works all of his works through the son. But this verse goes on to give us a connection. 
Look at the rest of verse 19. The question is why? Father does everything he does through the Son. How does he do that? Because he shows him all that he does. Why? Because he loves his Son. That's the next point here. The Father's love results in disclosing all of his works to the Son. In other words, the Father reveals everything, all of his purposes, all of his plans, desires, works to the Son he loves. The Son has been given insight and disclosure. Look at what it says, into all that the Father does. We're going somewhere with this, so just hang on. So what are the things that the Father is doing and showing to his Son? What does it say? Which things are they? Look at verse uh, 20. Shows him how many things? All things. All his works he has shown to his Son, and so the Son sees and does all the Father is doing. In other words, flip through the Scripture. Every time you see God doing anything, he is doing it through his Son. That's the point. Every single thing. God does is by revealing it to his son and his son responding to him. In other words, every act of God is Trinitarian. Every act of God is Trinitarian. Everything God does involves the entirety of his being. Father, Son, Spirit working in happy cooperation with one another. But beyond that, the even greater point is this, that every work of God is the overflow of the love between the Father and the Son. So it's not just this cooperation. Everything that God is doing is bursting from this love the Father has between himself and the Son. Is that the picture of God that you have? Whether it is creation of the world or his plan of redemption or the coming judgment or his works of providence or redemption or the kingdom of the new heavens and the earth, everything that happens overflows from this eternal loving relationship between the Father. So before we move on, I just want to sort of hit the pause button here and think a bit, bit longer. Um, that the love, especially, that's shown in the gospel, in the entire work of the gospel, everything we have in the gospel is the overflow of the eternal love of the triune God. The Son is so in love with the Father that he always does his will, and the Father is so in love with the Son that he pursues his honor and wants others to enjoy and join in the love of his son. And that's very good news. From this overflow flows the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But before God so loved the world, God so loved his son that he gave his only son. In other words, the son did not come to save us from an unloving father. The son didn't come to you know, pacifier, all right, Dad, just settle down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take this. No. They were in happy cooperation. In fact, the coming of the Son is evidence. It's the overflow of the abounding love the Father has for his Son. And it overflows, spills over on sinners like you and me. Go to John 15, verse, verse 9. John 15, 9. John 15, verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, the Son, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
In other words, the love of the Father cascades down unto his Son, and that same love cascades down then to all those who are in the Son by faith. So I want to just take a, take a minute here and pull out a few implications of this for, for us um, to, to pull this away and apply it to our lives. The first thing is this. The first result of this overflowing Trinitarian love in the gospel is the particular love the Father has towards believers. And man, this is good news. Um, so good. The Father himself loves you. Go to John 16, 27. John 16, 27. Jesus says, he's encouraging the disciples to pray. And he says, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Go to chapter 17, verse 23. He's talking about this amazing relationship that believers now have. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them. Look at that. Even as you have loved me. It's astonishing. The same love the Father has for his Son from eternity is now poured out on believers. That almost feels blasphemous to say. It's astonishing. Listen to John Owen on this point. Christians oftentimes walk with exceedingly troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father towards them. They're well persuaded of the Lord Christ and his goodwill. The difficulty lies in what is their acceptance with the Father? What is his heart toward them? Now this ought be so far away that his love ought to be looked on as the fountain from which, which all other sweetness flows. What is Owen saying here? He means that if we have any sweetness in the gospel, any grace, any love in Christ, it's because we also have the love of the Father. Does Christ love you? Friends, the Father himself. He is the fountain of all gospel love. If you've tasted of the springs, you also have the fountain, is what Owen is saying. He goes on. Though there be no light for us but in the beams, yet we may by the beams see the sun, which is the fountain of it. Though all our refreshment actually lie in the streams, yet by them we are led up to the fountain. Jesus Christ, in respect of the love of the Father, is but the beam, the stream, Wherein, though actually all our light and refreshment lies, yet by him we are led to the fountain, the sun of eternal love itself. Would believers exercise themselves herein, they would find it no a matter of no small spiritual improvement in their walking with God. <laughs> That's why you, you should read John Owen. What is he saying? He's saying how slow we are to believe this of the Father, but man... If you come to realize the Father's disposition to you is just as affectionate as it is towards Christ, how that would transform your entire lives, how that would sweeten your sufferings, 
how that would give perspective and balance and confidence and certainty in the midst of all of life's troubles. They're not coming from an angry father. They're coming from a father who has been reconciled to you and is just as favorably disposed to you as to his son. It's astonishing. The father himself loves you because of this Trinitarian love. If there was no Trinity, you would not have that. You see that? You could not have that. There would be no gospel. There's a second way, um, second result, this overflowing Trinitarian love. And that is that believers are made to love the Son just as the Father loves the Son. It's not only that the Father loves those who are in Christ, but now he transforms those in Christ by his Spirit to love the Son in the same way the Father loves the Son. Listen to Michael Reeves again. Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of his almighty love for the Son. That's the gift of the gospel. The ultimate gift of the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's that you get caught up in this Trinitarian love and that you get the privilege of loving the Son in the same way the Father does. Go to chapter 17 again. 25. 17.25. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The gift of the gospel is what? You get the Father's love for the Son in yourself. You get the privilege of enjoying Christ for eternity. That's the gift of the gospel. And it's entirely dependent on the Trinity. So go back to John 5. We could swim here for um, hours. Um, we've got a few minutes left, and we'll tackle this last point. Uh, let me just make a quick advertisement. I quoted Michael Reeves a couple times. There's a little book, Delighting in the Trinity. Phenomenal. Um, get it. Uh, don't uh, piddle around in, in, in just all the junk that's in Christian bookstores. Get, get this. I mean, it is good. Right? This is just awesome. And uh, um, good. I'll be quoting from him as we, as we go through. So the final point here. The father invests the son with his authority out of an unyielding pursuit for the son's honor. Verses 21 to 23. So verse 20 ended with Jesus um, declaring that the father will show him greater works than these. Look at verse 20. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. So what is the these here? Greater works than these. It's probably referring to Christ's signs that he's been doing, his teaching and his signs that he's been doing. And the Jews are astonished. And Jesus says that's nothing compared to what the Father is about to show the Son, and the Son responded by, by doing. And that's where he goes next. Well, what are those things, Jesus? What are these greater things? And that is uh, the, rest of our, the rest of our passage. Verse 21, first, the Son replicates the Father's life-giving power. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. There would have been no question for Jews that God is the one who raises the dead. You read it all over the Old Testament. 
But the astonishing thing here is that Jesus claims to be the son who raises the dead and gives life. Look at this. Just as the father. In other words, Jesus is not like one of the Old Testament prophets, sort of a tool that God used to funnel his power through. He does it in the same manner as God the Father. Another astonishing claim to, to deity. Well, why? Why does he do that? Look at the next point. It replicates the Father's life-giving power. The Father has ordained the Son as the agent to carry out his judgment. Verses 22 to 23. We can say so much here. Back in verse 21, he gives life that, that we're going to see next week that, that works its way out first in the giving of spiritual life. And then finally in the giving of resurrection life to believers and to unbelievers. Resurrection unto salvation and a resurrection unto eternal judgment will all come through the Son. But he's come now as the Father's representative to give life, look at that, to all whom he desires. That doesn't mean, again, that he, whoever he wants in independence from the Father. No, we see through John that Christ gives life to those he, whom he desires, whom the Spirit desires, and whom the Father desires. Again, that cooperation in the Trinity. It means he gives life to whomever he desires in independence from any human manipulation, in independence from any human forcing of him to do whatever he wants. He, he's free, just as free as God the Father is. And that leads us to the second point. It's the Father has ordained the Son to carry out his judgment. Look at verses 22 to 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We get another four at the beginning of verse 22. Is there another reason? Why is it the Father has given um, that the Son gives life to whomever he desires? Why is it that the Father has ordained him as his agent? It's because the Father judges no one. Now what does that mean? In the Old Testament, again, we read all over the place that the Father judges. God judges. He's the judge of the world. He's going to come. It means exactly what we've just seen. It means that all the judgment that God the Father is going to do and that he does, he filters it through his Son. The Son is his representative. It's his agent. Christ is the one who will execute every bit of judgment of the Father. And when you think of judgment, don't think just of punishment, right? That's often what we hear when we hear judgment, the idea of judgment is perfectly distributing justice, perfectly giving retribution to the righteous, to, to those who have salvation and resurrection of life, and also in the executing of God's wrath and judgment on the, on the wicked. The point is that it will all be filtered and funneled through the sun. We are have one minute left. Let me just highlight this really quick. People have a misunderstanding of Christ when they think of him only as Savior and not as judge. Um, it's not Christ is Savior and God is judge. No. The whole Trinity is involved. Christ came the first time to bear condemnation. And that same one who came to bear the condemnation for sins is also the one who will come to execute the Father's justice and righteousness and judgment. And man, this works its way out all over the place. I have, I have these references. I think I put them up here. Go look them up. Just over and over where it's the son who's doing it. 
and sometimes it's done to believers, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as he's standing on behalf of the Father to reward you or in which you will suffer loss. You'll be saved. But there's going to be an examination coming through the Son. And he will also be the one to execute the Father's fierce wrath. Just read the book of Revelation. But why? Look at the culmination verse, verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is, again, that inter-Trinitarian fellowship. The Son is totally in submission to the Father. And what is the Father after? The honor and the glory and the worship of his Son. They are all so happily devoted to one another. That's what the Father is after. What's the implication of this? That's the purpose, the implication is the inseparability of the Father from the Son. The same honor that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. That's, again, another evidence that Christ is equal with God. A representative, a delegate, the king sends, he doesn't get the same honor as a king, right? That's not the case for Christ. The Father sends him as his representative so that he would receive the same honor as judge of all that God the Father himself receives. So the point is, is how you respond to the Son is how you respond to the Father. And how you respond to the Father is how you respond to the Son. So let me just leave you with this. Um, What's your relationship with God the Father? How do you know Examine your relationship with God the Son. Is he your Lord? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Are you in happy devotion and submission to him and his words? That's how you know how you are with God the Father. The Jews thought they were honoring God the Father. And Jesus says, no, you're not. If you don't honor me, you do not honor him. This is weighty stuff, man. And uh, But man, is it rich. And uh, I could go on and, and on, but next week we're going to finish this, verses 24 to 29, and really unpack um, some of the implications now of what's going on. Any questions, comments? It is 1017. I know we got to go. Um, questions, comments? Yes? I do have a question. It might be bigger than the time you have, yeah. but um, you see throughout all Scripture, the Father and the Sons, or Scripture speaking of their love, uh, for each other, why do you see no mention of the love for the Spirit mm-hmm. or the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son mm-hmm. anywhere in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. Yeah, that's a big that's a big topic. So, <laughs> what I will say is, the Spirit is just as much a person, just as much fully God in every way as Father and Son. Um, John's going to talk a ton about the Spirit in the coming chapters. Um, I have not emphasized it because this passage is not emphasizing it. Doesn't mean it's not there, not important, not true. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a big, big question. I think I know where you're where you're going with that. Um, and uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll hit that in the weeks come. That's an excellent question. But if you want to know the answer beforehand, uh, grab "Delighting in the Trinity" by Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. It's, uh, it's an excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, what? So are you getting kickbacks? Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Good. Okay, guys, let me pray really quick. Father, what an astonishing thing the gospel is. Oh, Lord, let us not live below um, all the benefits of the gospel that are just readily available for us. You're the eternal triune God. 
Let us know you more, delight you more, and know the gifts of the gospel is overflowing from your very being so that we would be caught up to enjoy the very fellowship among yourself, Father, Son, Spirit. We love you. Transform us, Lord, and pray for the service to come that you would speak through your word and cause us to hear, listen, and obey. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay.